And now hear God's holy word from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, continuing our study in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthian church. Hear God's word. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God, God gives it a body as he pleases and each seed its own body. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the incredible privilege that we have to hear it, uh, that you have spoken to us. You have not been silent. You have revealed yourself to us, both through your word and through your spirit and through your people and through the uh, sacraments. You, you You have filled our lives with the revelation of your purpose, your will, your character. And so as we enter the study of your word today, further illumine us by your Holy Spirit, clarify our thoughts, help us to articulate these things and to speak of them to each other and to encourage one another with these truths. Father, guide us now by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever noticed how quickly a house abandoned deteriorates? It, It goes downhill rather quickly. Things start falling apart. Squirrels take up residence in the attic and uh, and, and things paint peels and, and things crack and fall down. You can't leave something like a house all to itself and expect that it's going to go the other direction. It's not going to get better. It's not going to fix itself. It's not going to repair itself. It, it's not going to improve on its own. It, it left to itself will inevitably fall apart. There's no other direction for it to go. I'm not, I'm not a physicist. I'm not a chemist, obviously. But somewhere along the way, I've read about the laws of thermodynamics. And in particular, we, I think we're most familiar with the second law, which says that an isolated system, I'm sorry, in an isolated system, the rate of entropy always increases. Entropy, entropy is the universal principle of decay observable in nature. And all this means is that systems tend to move from order to disorder, from stability to instability. Unless there's some outside force to reverse the decay, to repair the damage, the, the, to, to turn back the entropy, to undo it, processes are always slowing and cooling and run, running out of energy. You know, when you, when you spin a top on a table or you spin a coin, it starts to wobble. The rotation decays and it falls and it stops spinning. That's what happens every time. Ice melts. Batteries use up all their juice. Light bulbs burn out. Coca-Cola loses its fizz. Radioactive waste becomes inert. And a house with a boy living in it will never be clean. That's entropy. <laughs> that's, just, that's just the way it works. And that's what we observe in the world around us. Everything is on a trajectory of decay. No matter how well you maintain your car, parts are going to fail. No matter how well you eat and exercise, your body will wear out. And this is the experience of everyone since Adam, that that our bodies are on an inevitable march toward death. We know, however, that this is not the way things are supposed to go, especially with our bodies and with our lives. This is wrong because now 
Jesus has stepped into this creation and has started turning things backwards. He's begun reverting the effects of sin and sickness, death and decay. When Jesus came, he healed and life was given by him and wholeness was was distributed to people who had no hope of ever getting better. And then Jesus was put into a grave after he was executed and and he... uh, was shorted out the grave, as it were. He reversed the ravages of death. He turned defeat into victory and transformed the grave into a doorway for more life. In this last major section of, of chapter 15, we've, I've, I've wanted to kind of slow down through uh, 1 Corinthians 15 because it's such an important chapter for our faith and our life. And so we're in this last section of chapter 15 um, <clears throat> where in this whole chapter, Paul has worked to demonstrate just how critically important the resurrection of Jesus is to our salvation, to our future, and to our, our present life. And, and he's been working to communicate just what are the benefits of the resurrection. Because the, the doctrine of the resurrection has been mocked in Corinth, it's been doubted, it's been marginalized. So Paul picks it up, dusts it off, and sets it square in the center of the table, puts it right in the middle of the Christian faith, and to show that because of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of His resurrection, and and because of what the Spirit has done through Him, He's now putting the world back together again. He's, He's now putting things back the way they ought to be. While things in our experience still die and decay, we know that that's not the end of the story. We know that Jesus is just the first fruits, as we read last week. He's just the sample of a larger resurrection and glorification that is coming for the whole creation. So in in Jesus' resurrection, we're promised that we too are going to live. We too are going to rise again after death. So this final section of this chapter teaches this, that that not only was Jesus gloriously and triumphantly brought back through the grave onto more life, and that's wonderful, but we will be too. There is a personal individual, there is a, a, a believer by believer effect of this of this resurrection of Jesus. There's a, there's a payout for every believer who's united to him, uh, who's united to, to Jesus. We, we tend to assume, and we talk about this, and the hymns of the late uh, 18th century through the 19th century to the beginning of the 20th century, the things that were written during that time don't do us a lot of favors. They don't really help our theology because it it makes it sound as if the whole purpose and goal and end of the Christian faith is to go to heaven when you die, as if that's all there is. That's just it. We go to heaven when we die. It's all about heaven, that heaven is our home, and once you cross the finish line, you're done. But what 1 Corinthians 15 teaches us, and Paul teaches us in other places we're going to read as well this morning, is that it's not all about, it's not all about heaven. There's something beyond heaven that we're looking forward to. There is the resurrection of the body. There is the redemption of all creation and our future existence, our eternal existence in the creation that God has renewed and that, and that he has redeemed. Um, and, and that's where, this is where Paul, Paul gives us this. So yes, Jesus has been raised to glory from the grave, but here's the great part. Here's the icing on the cake. Here's the cherry on top of that. You will be too. You will be raised to glory. 
And so in this last section, he turns from the resurrection of Jesus to the reality of our own bodily resurrection. And that while we see everything decaying and falling apart around us, we have in, in this, this hope that that's not the way things are always going to be. So turning now to the reality of our own bodily resurrection, uh, even as Paul writes these words, he's anticipating the objections of the people he's writing to. Now, remember again, who he's writing to, he's writing into this Greek philosophical context, the society that is steeped in Gnosticism, holding this dichotomy between the body and the spirit. Um, so for the Greeks, the idea that the effects of time, age, and death, the, the, just the idea that they could be reversed on the human body, or that this is something that should be desired, was so far out of their imaginations that they could do nothing but mock and laugh. You see, in their understanding, in that Gnostic philosophy, they believe the body is a prison that we are hoping to be saved from. We're just hoping to be freed from this body. So any kind of attention to the body after the departure of the soul this is a waste of time. Why, why would you waste effort on the body if the whole goal, once again, is to go to the great beyond and uh, live there happily ever after? Why pay attention to the body? And so Paul suggests here uh, that our bodies are going to be brought back and that we're going to inhabit them. And as he does that, just imagine what must be going through their minds. I mean, we've seen dead bodies before. We know what happens to the human body after the life is gone. It's like when you abandon a house, it completely, when the, when the life is gone, everything quickly decays and falls apart. Why would you ever want to be reattached to that? And how could, how could people possibly rise up in new life after their bodies have turned to dust. So, so he answers this question in a way that reminds us of the importance of the creation, as well as explains to us how our bodies are going to be transformed. They're gonna be made new, and they're gonna be made better than ever before. So he anticipates two questions, and he starts with these two questions. How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? These are the two questions that he anticipates. How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? In other words, what are the mechanics of resurrection? Paul explained to me how all of this is supposed to work. What does the resurrected person look like? What, what is resurrected life like? So first, in, in, in an effort to answer this question, he introduces the idea of a seed being planted. You put a seed in the ground and you cover it with dirt. It's, it's like a little liturgy. Every time you, do a, every time you plant something, you, you dig a hole, you put the seed in there, you cover it up. It's very much like a little burial service, right? If you're like me, you also say a prayer over it because I'm a terrible gardener. I'm really bad at this. And so if I plant a seed, I say, Lord, please give us cucumbers this year. Give us something out of this effort. So you, you put it in there and you cover it up and you wait and you wait. And then eventually something comes out of the ground that looks very different from the seed that you put in the ground. Now, now there's some continuity there. The fruit that comes off of that plant is going to have seeds in it that look just like the thing you put in the ground, but they're not the same seed. They're something, they're, they're different seeds than the one you put in the ground. So, so there's some continuity, but there's also a great discontinuity. And you think, how did this big, green, leafy, fragrant, vigorous, beautiful, glorious, fruit-bearing plant, how did all of this come from that little 
tiny, desiccated seed. How did we get all of this out of, out of that? Well, you all know that that's just the way things work and you take it for granted. You put the little seed in and you get, you get this. And so carrying on in this metaphor, he says, now remember and notice the seed must be destroyed if new life is to appear. You dig up the plant, where's the original seed? It's, it's not there, it's gone. The destruction of the seed gives way to the growth and health of the life-giving plant. And the, and the plant is way more glorious than the seed. So, so the, the Greeks are thinking, you know, the human body decays and returns to dust. How can there be a resurrection? And Paul responds, yes, exactly. The body does dissolve, but so does a seed when you plant it. And the plant that comes up is incomparably more glorious than the seed that is buried. And so the, the body that is buried is, is going to... Uh, is, is, so, um, is going to die and decay and, and, and be no more, but be the seed of a body that is incomparably more glorious than the one that is buried. So uh, think of graveyards, especially where the righteous are buried. Think of them as big gardens. We're just planting seeds. We've planted seeds all around here, and those are going to give life to new and glorious and wonderful plants. That's, that's the metaphor that he uses. And he continues on that note. He points out that each seed produces its own unique plant body. Corn, when planted, produces one kind of plant, wheat another. And he says, God gives each a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body. A lot of forms of mysticism, Eastern mysticism and other, other kinds of um, uh, superstitions, they have this idea of an afterlife where our consciousness just kind of melds with this general life force, this general consciousness, and, and our identity and our existence just becomes a drop in this great ocean of consciousness so that we don't have any more individuality. We're just this amalgamated mass of being. Well, Paul speaks to that here and says that's not at all the Christian hope. The Christian hope is that each seed gets its own body. Each seed has its own identity and gets its own future. Now, certainly we're all united and we're all connected in the glorious eternity that awaits us, but we retain our own being just as Jesus retained his identity in his resurrected body. Now, of course, Martha didn't notice him at first. She didn't, um, I'm sorry, Mary Magdalene rather, uh, didn't notice him at first. Uh, uh, well, she didn't expect him to be there. Uh, so it takes her a minute, but it's, oh, oh wait, my Lord. And, and she embraces him. So he was changed in some significant ways, but he was also recognizable and retained his identity. He was still Jesus. And again, Paul points out, all of this is of the Lord. God gives it a body, speaking of plants, God gives it a body as he pleases. And so will he with us. Plants don't rise and people don't rise out of their own volition, nor by chance. They do it because God causes them to. He causes the plants to grow. He causes our bodies to have life. He will cause our bodies to have future life in the resurrection. And, and this is all present tense. He gives, he gives and causes. Um, he is always giving seeds bodies and he is determined to give you life and to give your body when it is put in the ground to give your body its own resurrected body. And so that's the answer to the first question. How are the dead raised up? Well, 
You know what happens to seeds, right? You're good at that. You know, you know what's going on there. Meditate on that. That's, that's, this is how God works. Now he comes to the second question, with what body do they come? So let's pick up in verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory." We're already used to seeing all kinds of diversity in God's creation. We're used to seeing different, different kinds of, of bodies, animal bodies. Some, some animal bodies have wings. Some of them have gills. Some of them have hooves. Some of them have funny noses. Some of them have cute ears. I mean, they, they all have different bodies, each one suited to its own purpose. And we're used to seeing different kinds of heavenly bodies, sun, moon, stars, planets, comets. They're, they're all different kinds of created physicalities, and each one has its own properties suited to its own purposes, all given by God. And, and so what Paul's doing here is he's laying the groundwork for the idea that there is a kind of body that you have before resurrection and a kind of body that you have after it. You and I have bodies now suited for this existence, but we will be given a different kind of body equipped for the new existence. And God carefully creates these bodies with a different kind of glory. So the effort here is to answer the question, how does the resurrection make sense? How will these bodies be raised, especially since they decay and turn to dust? And uh, it's a tragic reality that some people die in horrible ways where there's nothing to bury, there's, there's nothing to put into the ground. And, and we could add to that modern questions about um, uh, organ transplants. If, if you give me your kidney and, uh, and, and then we're both buried, who gets the kidney in the resurrection, right? I mean, the, the Pharisees asked Jesus, you know, you know, this woman married seven men, which one gets her in the resurrection? Well, we'd have that question about any number of of organ, of organ transplants. And, and there are many questions we could ask and ponder about that. How does all this get sorted out in the resurrection? And Paul's answer is very simple. It's here. The God who created all the complexities of the cosmos, the God who created both the giraffe and the earthworm, the God who created both atoms and supernovas is going to recreate our bodies at the resurrection and recreate them in new, unfathomable glory. Notice he's drawing images from Genesis 1 here. He's, he's using this language of seeds and plants, birds of the air, fish of the sea, land animals, sun, moon, stars. He, where, where's all this language coming from? He's using Genesis 1 language. In just a moment, he's going to mention Adam. So what is he doing? He's calling to mind the creation so that we think of our resurrection, we think of the resurrection to come as a new Genesis, a new creation. Through Jesus, God is continuing the work that he began at creation and, and in doing so, reversing the effects of our rebellion, even death itself. The God who created everything to begin with will recreate our bodies, will resurrect our bodies and glorify them however he chooses. And so the, the questions that we might raise and, and might even raise as objections and might even think, well, that, 
How does that work? How does this work? Uh, the answer is God sorts it out. That's the answer. God, who creates everything, sorts it out. He uh, is, is, can certainly, if he can create Adam from the dust of the earth and breathe life into him, he will take whatever remains of you in that grave that is laid there for a thousand, two thousand years and recreate you out of whatever, whatever is there and give you a new body. And that is our hope and that is our trust. So, so the question comes as, you know, as from a scoffer, how's this supposed to work? But Paul points them to the creation that we see all around us, how God teaches resurrection and glorification in nature. How do, how do caterpillars turn into butterflies? How do ugly ducklings turn into beautiful swans? Now I know ducklings turn into ducks, but I'm calling on the story that it was an ugly duckling who turned into a swan, a beautiful swan. Why does the sun go down every night and come up every morning? All of these things teach us about resurrection. Paul points us to the, to the creation to see the God who can do that has no problem sorting you out in the resurrection and putting you back together. So now he says, you know how there are different kinds of animal bodies and heavenly bodies, different kinds of, 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 of you know, things in nature? Well, there are different kinds of human beings. There is natural man and there is spiritual man. There's a man of dust and there's heavenly man. The natural man goes down to the dust and returns to the dust and stays there. But the spiritual man who is united to Jesus and united to the resurrection of Jesus is called up to the heavenlies. And that's where he picks up in verse 42. So also is the res resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it was written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And is, as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So Paul's not carrying on these these unhelpful Gnostic dichotomies between spirit and flesh. He's not emphasizing the soul over the body. He's not borrowing from their vocabulary. He's making a contrast between a life that is animated by one kind of life and a body that is am an animated by another kind of life. Everybody ever born has a body animated by the life given to Adam, breathed into Adam at creation. But that natural life is going to expire because the body is, is going to decay. The, body, the, the, the life goes on, but this body wears out and expires. And so we have a future in a fully human resurrection body, but it must be one that is animated by the second Adam and his life-giving spirit. So Paul lists five differences that, that we can anticipate between our present mortal bodies and the body we'll receive in the resurrection. Five, five things. He says, first, our present bodies are perishable, but resurrection bodies are imperishable. 
Right now, we live under the constant threat of sickness and death and pain. Things are aching and things wear out and things don't make sense. Why do I, why do I hurt there? I didn't do anything with that muscle the other day, but it now hurts. How does this work? Why can't I hear anymore? Why can't I see anymore? Why, why is this happening to me? But our resurrected bodies won't have any of those difficulties. They are imperishable. They don't wear out. Imagine having a car that you never had to change its oil. You never had to do any repairs. In fact, you, you leave it alone and it's just as nice uh, five years from now as it was the day you bought it. Nothing wears out. Imagine a house that you never had to do repairs to, that it just uh, stayed put together and you didn't have to do anything with it. That is the house that we'll receive, an imperishable house. Uh, secondly, Mortal bodies, he said, carry dishonor, but resurrected bodies carry glory. Since Adam, all men have been born into bodies corrupted by sin. You and your body are and have been corrupted by sin, and with sin comes shame and guilt and the sentence of death. But resurrected bodies will be delivered from sin and all of its effects, all of its downstream effects. Third, mortal bodies suffer weakness, but resurrected bodies will be filled with power. Adam was initially given all the power and honor of dominion over creation, but, but Romans 8 says creation has been subjected to futility. We don't master the creation the way that we were designed to, the way we were created to. We're not good husbandmen of the, of the gardens that God has put us into. But in the resurrection, we reign with Jesus in great power over his creation as we were created to. Fourth, our bodies are now natural, but our resurrected bodies will be spiritual, he says. We, we think, again, it's so hard to break up these Gnostic tendencies, and so we have to, we have to keep working on it. We kept, have to keep you know, cutting through it. We think that what is physical is real. We think physical is a, a synonym of material, and what, um, what is spiritual, well, that's just you know, kind of wispy stuff. It's imaginary. It's less than real. Spiritual is less than real, and physical is real. Uh, something spiritual, you can't hold on to it, you can't really be sure about it. But actually the opposite is true. We've got it backwards. Our present composition, our present bodies are what's less than real. Our, our present bodies are just a poor facsimile of what we will be. Our resurrected bodies will be more real than our present bodies because they are spiritual. Remember how the resurrected Jesus entered and left a room and it's like he didn't even use the door. How'd you get in here? What, what, where'd you come from? He cooked and ate fish though and he ate bread and people touched him. So his body was tangible, but in greater strength and greater glory and greater power. So never think that spiritual means immaterial. And, and every time I can, whenever I use the word spiritual and whenever I see it in scriptures, I, I try to at least capitalize it. Capital S, spiritual. What, what, what's the point of that? Because spiritual refers to the work of the Holy Spirit. So, so this, is a, this is an act or a work of God's Spirit. And our bodies in the resurrection will be spiritual because they will be renewed and, and the work of the Holy Spirit will have its full effects on us just as Jesus' body was a creation of the Holy Spirit. They will be spiritual, not uh, not physical in the sense that, that we have today. Fifth, our bodies are now made from earth 
of dust, just like the first Adam, but the, the second Adam is from heaven, and the resurrection body is a heavenly body. The resurrection body is a body built for the new creation. I don't even think our present bodies could make it in the new glorious heavens and earth. And I'm just using my imagination here, but it's likely that our present eyes couldn't take in all the color. We'd be blinded by the brightness. Our lungs aren't equipped to breathe air that rich. We couldn't drink water that pure. Our stomachs couldn't handle food that perfect, even if even our teeth could chew the food. Uh, our, our present bodies aren't built for eternity and for all that eternity holds. So we must have a body from heaven. We must have a heavenly body. So, so Paul moves from explaining not just why the resurrection is glorious, but why it's vital. Verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this, incor- for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass that saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So much packed in here. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Wait, didn't he just insist on a bodily resurrection? What does he mean flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God? I thought we were getting new bodies. I thought that's what you were saying. Uh, isn't flesh and blood just another way of saying body? Is he taking back everything he just said? No. When the scriptures use the word flesh, when Jesus uses the word flesh, he's referring to that part of us that is in rebellion against God. What is fleshly is what is perishing or decaying. And, And he explains this immediately when he says, corruption can't take on incorruption. Corruption can't inherit incorruption. So this present flesh and blood Uh, part of us is going to die and decay, but God has begun in Jesus the creation of a world in which decay and death aren't put up with. In, In the new creation, we don't have time for death and decay. We don't have any room for it. Death is not tolerated, but defeated. And so we must have, in order to exist in that reality, have bodies that are immortal, powerful, incorruptible, and spiritual with a capital S. Now, now when does this happen? Paul writes, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. There are going to be many people in the world uh, uh, alive on the day of resurrection, whenever that day is in the future, and they will be instantly transformed and glorified. The rest of us who pass away before that day will sleep until that day. That's the word he uses, sleep. And that's the word he's used before. He uses this word sleep for the righteous who have passed from this life. It's, why does he use that word? Well, I think one reason is it's never fully accurate to say that a Christian is dead. I, I know that, you know, I'm not, I'm not being picky over words and we could say, yeah, you know, he died. Yeah, and I understand what you're talking about. But, but also in the same breath, it's never fully accurate to say a Christian is dead. He's not gone. He hasn't ceased to exist. 
He is resting. He is sleeping, waiting on the day when he will hear the trumpet sound and be joined again with his new resurrected bodies, his glorified bodies. That's when he will rise, be refreshed, and be renewed. And here Paul gives us a little window into that period between our death and our resurrection. When a Christian's body expires, his spirit is tragically separated from his body, but his spirit goes to be with the Lord. However, we know that that's not the end of the story. We were not created to be disembodied spirits. We were created from the beginning to be men and women with bodies. So what happens in the meantime? Well, Paul gives us a little bit more. He writes back to the Corinthians, another letter in 2 Corinthians 5. He gives us a a little bit more data on this. Um, I want to read 2 Corinthians 5. He talks about the groaning, this earnest desire to be clothed with our new permanent dwelling from, from heaven. So he says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You see, the destruction of this body is not the end of the story. It is not our eternal goal to live as disembodied spirits in heaven, you know, sitting on a cloud playing a harp. As pervasive as that image is, that is not our 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 eternal destiny. No, if this earthly house is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house uh, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. In Revelation, we see that image of the martyrs under the throne of God saying, how long, how long, how long? And even those who haven't been martyred, I'm sure are still saying, Lord, is it, is it, are we there yet? Do we get our bodies yet? Is it time yet? They're at rest and they're at peace and they're, uh, have been delivered from the effects of sin and they've been delivered from pain, but they're not they're not complete. Earnestly desiring to be clothed is what, is what they're hoping for. Verse 3, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. I, I don't want to just lose this, lose this body. I want to be further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, and he's also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. Is heaven our home or are our bodies our home? Well, 1 Corinthians 5 says we're home in the body. And so that's why I really don't like talking about heaven as my home. Heaven is where we rest with Jesus. Heaven is where we are freed from the effects of sin and decay and corruption and where we're safe from the wiles of the devil. But heaven is not the end of the story. Going to heaven is not the end of our journey. Earth is the place that God has designed us to inhabit and we will return to a glorified earth in our resurrected bodies one day. That is the hope. In the meantime, when our bodies die, we go to rest with the Lord, but we are not complete. 
Um, uh, so, so there's still the expectation of something better. You might think, well, well what could get better than heaven? What, what, what's better than heaven? Well, resurrection is better than heaven. And a bodily life on a renewed, restored earth is better than heaven. See, they're still er- yearning for something more. They don't want to be found naked. They want to be clothed, clothed with the incorruptible. And so that's what Paul says. This corruptible will put on incorruption and mortality will put on immortality. And so, uh, again, that doesn't happen when you die. That happens in the resurrection. That happens when the trump sounds, right? When the trumpet sounds, then you have your body. I've, I've heard too many funerals where the pastor says, well, you know, he's, he's fine now. He has his body and everything's working. No, he, do- he doesn't. He doesn't. We're waiting on the resurrection. There's still something better coming. Um, and so he uses, Paul uses this language of, of take off and put on. And so, so he's got this thing going where it's, think of a person taking off one set of dirty old ragged clothes and putting on a new suit, taking off the garments of weakness and sinful desire and taking off the garments of decay and putting on a new suit of power and purity and immortality and spiritual life with a capital S spiritual life. I read ahead uh, further than I wanted to read in that, that last section, so I want to reread uh, verse 54. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death claimed the victory from the very start in the garden. And since then, the world could do nothing but accept death. It's just nothing you can do about it. Something, something that we're all headed for and, and none of us has any strength or power in our own uh, a person to do anything about death. And we know that that's wrong. We know that that's, that's twisted. We know that that's not the way it's supposed to be. Something is wrong in a world that, that is always winding down, but, but what are you going to do about it? And now here comes Jesus and he defeats death, not only for himself, but for all of his people. And now we have this hope that death and decay will be swallowed up forever. The resurrection of Jesus was necessary for God to save his people, but notice that Jesus doesn't aim low. He doesn't try to sort out, you know, little things, little aggravations. You know, Jesus didn't come to, you know, sort out, you know, paper cuts and, you know, flat tires and, you know, uh, little things. He comes to save us from the things that destroy us. He comes to save us and grant to us our greatest needs. The corruption of our bodies and the inevitability of our death are our two biggest horrors, and he utterly destroys both. So moving quickly, what's what's the application of all this? Well, Paul gives it to us. Here's the application, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. If there's no life beyond this one, then it really doesn't matter what we do. All of our work is in vain. Everything is pointless. But since in fact, there is a real solid expectation an assurance of eternal life because there is this hope because of what Jesus has done, how do we respond to that? How do we live? You see, what we're given in the resurrection is not just a future hope, it is a present hope. It's, it's uh, the truth uh, about the present relevance of who we are and what we do. See, the resurrection testifies to the truth that your body matters. Your existence and your life 
matters. And what you do with your body matters. You are your body and your body is you. If Jesus saves you, he saves your body. If he is going to transform and perfect you, he is going to transform and perfect your body. Again, we get this in the resurrection, but this is, this is the message. We don't know all the details of how he does this. How does, how does he transform us and what life do we have to look forward to and what kind of existence? You know, I wonder, will I look different in some way? How old will we look in the resurrection? I mean, will, will he fix my nose or is this the one I've got for eternity? You know, how does this all work? Well, the Bible doesn't address any of that. What's important is this. If it is true that God is working to transform the present world and renew our whole being, body and soul, then what we do in this present time with our bodies in the world matters. The church has this Gnostic tendency, and we have had for several centuries, to make this separation between our future hope and our present responsibility. But in this last verse of of chapter 15, this is precisely what Paul refuses to do. Because of the reality of our resurrection in Jesus and because of the certainty of our new life in the resurrection, he sends the Corinthians right back to the present world. He doesn't allow them to escape their responsibilities in hope of something that's going to happen in the future. He sends them right back to the present world and our present incarnate lives of bodily obedience to the Lord. And he says, now go abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. And so if there is continuity between who we are right now and who we will be in the resurrection, then we cannot discount the importance of what we're doing right now. What a great encouragement to know that what we do in the present matters. And it's going to stand in some way for all time as we contribute to the great progressive and ever-increasing glory of Zion. And this is so important when you don't feel particularly happy doing what you're doing right now. When you don't feel like you're achieving anything or getting anywhere. When you feel like you're spinning your wheels. When you feel like everything is just futility and frustration, when you don't feel like you're making an impact and there's not much credit or glory or honor to what you're doing, this is the encouragement that your labor is not in vain. Go about your business quietly, put in a good day's work, train your children, be faithful to your studies. Whatever you do in the Lord's name will last in some way and will still have meaning when we return to a renewed glorified resurrection uh, uh, creation in the future. You, you might say, well, wait, well, how does this work? I mean, think of all the great symphonies that have been lost to time. Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach has over 20 uh, pieces that are just lost to time. We just, we, they're just gone. Uh, things that he did for the Lord, they're gone. All the books and the paintings and the sculptures and all the songs that are gone forever. They're lost to entropy. They're lost to decay. They're lost to the sands of time. And you think, if that stuff's gone forever, then what what, what, what does what I do have uh, to do with any eternal significance? Uh, How can this have any eternal significance? Well, again, just as I have faith that the God who created my body will resurrect my body, will recreate my body after it is turned to dust, I have that hope. I also have faith that God is going to take all of my work and weave all of the strands of my work together 
with everyone else's into this glorious tapestry of his new creation. Right now, we don't know how it all fits together. Right now, what I do and what you do and what Christians are doing on the other side of the world or what they did a thousand years ago or what they're gonna do a thousand years from now, I don't know how it all fits together. But the scriptures say it's not in vain, that none of what we do for the Lord is in vain. It's not empty, it's not meaningless. So that gives me the confidence that the Lord has it all worked out. It's not my job to know how it all fits together, but I do have faith that he is weaving it all together. So it matters immensely how you're spending your life right now. Someone told me when I was a young man and it stuck with me, he said, what you do on Saturday night matters for eternity. And it's true. And if that's true, then what you do on Tuesday afternoon matters for eternity too. Each time you feed your children, each diaper you change, each load of laundry, each mountain of paperwork, each line of code that you write, each class that you teach, each customer you serve, each word of encouragement that you give to someone, each prayer that you breathe, each psalm that you sing, if it is done faithfully as unto the Lord, it has the cumulative effect of building up his kingdom. Your work is not in vain. So in the sure hope of the resurrection, go out and work faithfully. (laughs) That's the application that he leaves us with. Go out and work faithfully, knowing that your work is not in vain, but bit by bit, you are bringing in his kingdom and you're bringing in to sharper and sharper clarity, pressing the crown rights of King Jesus into every corner of every sphere of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for its encouragement. Thank you indeed that you have given us this great resurrection hope that the death of this body is not the end of the story and not even heaven is the end of the story, but there is a great and more glorious day awaiting a day of resurrection where everything is put right. Father, we await that day earnestly and and even uh, at times impatiently because of the decay and the death and the corruption and the sorrow and the sin all around us. Father, set things right, and you have called us now in this present reality, in this, in this life, to, to be at work and to do your work with you and under the leadership of your Holy Spirit. So encourage us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.